Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Now you've got Ron DeSantis trying to create his own personal militia in Florida. Seriously. This is like bringing back the slave patrols, right? He wants to, he already has the National Guard, but the National Guard is overseen by the Pentagon. And he doesn't want that. He wants to have a military force in the state of Florida that is not to quote DeSantis, would not be encumbered by the federal government. He's calling it the Florida State Guard. He's going to use millions of dollars of Florida taxpayer money to do it. Now, you know, it raises an interesting question. What does he intend to do with this new military force? Charlie Crist, who wants to run against DeSantis next year as governor, he says no governor should have his own hand-picked secret police. My colleague Dino Badala here on SiriusXM, he says, DeSantis also said this unit would, quote, not be encumbered by the federal government, end quote. In other words, it would be Ron DeSantis's personal militia, you know, like political leaders in Iraq and Syria have. Hashtag Trump's Red Army. Daniel Olfelder uh, tweets, in a classic authoritarian move, Ron DeSantis brought his young son to brag about announcement of his reinstatement of a long-defunct Florida State Guard. The Florida State Guard would be under DeSantis's sole power without any interference. I mean, you know, what's, what, what is he intending to do with this? Are these the folks that are going to, like, show up on Election Day and make sure that the wrong people aren't voting? Is, is this the reincarnation of the slave patrols, only in a friendlier, kinder way? Uh, David Badash is writing about this over at, the, at NewCivilRightsMovement.com. And uh, the headline is, What Wannabe Totalitarian Fascist Dictators Do, colon, Alarm Over DeSantis's Move to Form His Own Personal Militia. This is bad enough. The question in my mind is, how many other Republican governors are going to be doing this too? And what happens when Republican governors for, say, 10 or 12 or 15 southern states all have their own personal militias who are not answerable to the federal government 
And hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Haven't we seen this movie before? Didn't we see this in 1861? Anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls here. Uh, Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Mr. Hartman. Yeah, it's morning where you are still. Yeah. Uh, just quickly about DeSantis. That is so insane. Maybe it's time to start calling Ron DeSantis, Ron DeStasi. You know, if he wants to form his own East German police force, you know, send him back to Germany. Yeah, it Merkel's seems. has got a little while longer, she'll take care of him. What I wanted to call about is uh, something I think to be of really huge importance. If SCOTUS is about to overturn Roe, which I don't think is likely, or, which I think is far more likely, throw everything back to the individual states, which are primarily GOP states. Well, that is overturning Roe. Yeah, it is, essentially. So here's what I think has to happen. And I don't, I mean, one quick comment. Why should the country have to wait six, possibly seven months to hear their decision? This is far too important a subject to keep the entire country hanging by their tenterhooks, you know, finding out is it yes or is it no. This is insane. We need a decision. I think we deserve Well, there's, there's, a, there's a process here, Nicholas. You know, each one, of, know, the, each one know. of the justices is going to review the law, and they're going to write their opinions, and they're going to polish it. And write I know. This, you know. I know. Yeah. But meanwhile, the country is absolutely in a state of stasis here. Yeah. But my point is, I don't think it's too soon for women, particularly men, of course, as well, but women particularly, to start talking with all of their friends, all of their acquaintances, all of their cohorts at work, about a three million woman march on D.C. This can't stand. I mean, everyone's been talking about it. Sotomayor alluded to it herself. This could destroy not only the court, but the country. This could, this could rip us apart as though we're not already well torn. Yeah. You, you hear what I'm saying? We need to see an enormous, massive march on Washington, D.C., and everybody should be holding up Clark Placards, true or not, saying, I am a Republican voter. You know, throw the fear of God into these nitwits. The, the, uh, the flip side of this is that the top op-ed over on the Washington Post website right now is titled, yeah. Over Overruling Roe Likely Won't Generate the Female Backlash the Feminists Expect. And it's by Megan it. McArdle, uh, you know, who, who actually makes a fairly convincing argument that so. there's there's not that much pro-abortion passion out there um it, just like there's not frankly that much anti-abortion passion out there both tend to be concentrated in relatively small groups um yes, uh, relatively speaking and uh that this is probably not going to be a big deal i think that uh, the opposite i, I, I think be, i think it, it actually be, is going to become a big deal uh, when red states start banning abortion i think that you're going to start seeing a backlash, but we'll see. I mean, you know, uh, I, I honestly yeah, don't know I, the I agree with that. I read McArdle's op-ed, but I, I, I was not as convinced uh, of its uh, accuracy as, as you may have been. I think women are, should be at least, should be wildly outraged at this point and active. Get active. Do something. Yeah. Well, yeah. not too soon. It's not. This is going to be enormous. I'm, I'm you with know. you. I'm with you, Nicholas. Thank you for the yeah. call. Thanks for, for bringing a, bringing the topic up. Oop, I'm sorry, I, uh, David in Sarasota, Florida. Speaking of Florida, hey David, what's up? How you doing, Tom? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you if you heard about Angus Angus uh, King from Maine saying uh, that basically it was a, a change on the filibuster rules to make more senators uh, stay on the floor. So it would be more fair to the opposite side. Yeah, 
Uh, no, I, I, I haven't heard a recent quote from him. I know uh, four or five months ago he talked about he was willing to consider, you know, changes to the filibuster, including requiring um, uh, a number. I don't recall if it was 40. That was, you know, but that would be that would comport with the current number requiring 40 people to be on the floor, one person continuously talking. Was he advocating right. that or was he saying that he was not a fan of it? Uh, he said he was a fan of um, raising the uh, raising the number of senators right. on the floor. Yeah. And, uh, well, hopefully someone will get the mansion with that idea. Well, it's 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 been kicked around a lot in Washington, D.C. for quite some time. I mean, the, the reality is uh, 40 senators who represent uh, less than a third of the country, in fact, less than 20 percent of the country, I think it's 24 percent of the country right now, um, as Angus King pointed out himself, uh, that those 40 senators can block things right now. But actually, it takes 60 senators to, to overcome that block. What he is suggesting is that rather, in, instead of the Democrats having to marshal 60 votes, the Republicans would have to hold the 40 votes, which makes sense. I mean, they're the ones who are trying to stop things. So get them on the floor and make them actually stop things. So uh, right. I, I, I am with you and I am hopeful that this is how it turns out. I'm very hopeful. David, thank you for the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave. I was our favorite intelligence hey. officer. Hey, good, Tom. You know, um, there's two 21st century warlords I wanted to bring up real quick. One is Muqtada al-Sadr, and the other was General Dostum. I think Muqtada al-Sadr, though, has higher aspirations than just being a warlord. So, so Muqtada al-Sadr is the leader of the Shia faction in Iraq, right? Yes, but I, I think he has larger. He's not satisfied with being a warlord. He has no. He wants to be president of the country. Yeah, like DeSantis. And and as far as General Dostum, he's like the ultimate warlord. He, um, I think Dostum is he the head was, of the Iraqi military? No, Dostum was in Afghanistan. He's a Tajik, and oh, he is yeah. okay. In a, he's like a he is like a shogun man. Mm -hmm. I kid you not. Dostum's been around for years, and what I think when when um, uh, Trump did his meeting with the Taliban, Dostum said, "Wait a minute, this is messed up. I'm taking my militia and going home." And it had a domino effect. You know how everyone's asking, "Where's the uh, government of Afghanistan?" Well, they saw Dostum leave, and they all left. I mean, mm. That's my theory on it. Mm. But what I called for, Tom, is to talk about how right you are and what made me think about it and how right you've been for years. What made me think about it was that politician that said we did not vote for, for Joe Biden to be FDR. We voted for him to make things normal again. I started asking myself, what is normal? And I started looking, man. Check this out. Um there's a company that, remember one time I told you that China controls 90% of the world's rare earth minerals? Mm -hmm. And you said, well, big deal, Dave. I mean, we got them here in America. We could mine them here. Well, there, there's a company that no one's paying attention to called Rio Tinto. And they yeah, have this it's deal. the largest going mining in, company in the world. It's based out of Australia. Yes. And they have this deal going in Serbia, former Warsaw Pact with a very Putin-friendly strongman that Richard Grinnell just went and talked to and explained how to do the American style of, of uh, you know, when they, the government can take your property, right? Mm -hmm. The government has domain, eminent yeah. domain, right? right. And, um, and this is, this, I started connecting the dots. Look, uh, if you go to Ukraine right now, what is Vladimir Zelensky? What is his big problem? 
He is breaking up the oligarchs. He even mentioned one of the oligarchs that was mentioned in the uh, Mueller report as being a coup plotter with, with Vladimir Putin. He mentioned Rinyat Akhmatov. Now, I don't blame people for not going there, right, because it gets confusing. But what, what's but the that, point you're making, Dave? Okay, we're going to hit a my, break here in a second. Yes, my point is this, Tom. We are not only importing fascism, but we are exporting fascism. And, and, and Vladimir Putin is going to install oligarchs. He's, he, sees, he sees the way he can do it. And he's going to install one. Uh, 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 oligarch-friendly fascist here in America is probably going to be Ron DeSantis. Well, I'm telling you. Yeah. And, it wouldn't surprise uh, me. I mean, you know, DeSantis, Tom Cotton. Uh, Josh Hawley, Rick Scott. Rick Scott is the one that I think is, has got the upper leg. Well, who knows? Dave, thank you for the call. Uh, yeah, fascism coming to a town near you. Charles in Portland. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom, and hi from inside the, uh, the Portland bubble. How are you doing today? I'm great. What's up? The uh, thing about the Florida private militia thing, if they do that private militia thing for a state, that is the end of the United States. These, you know, the 13 colonies and now the 50 states came together under a federal government that handles the military. Yeah, they've got their National Guard, but that's responsible to the Pentagon, as you said. If they have an independent military that they can use to, let's say, uh, enforce abortion laws, you know, that you can't come across a state, or more critically, what about Western states that are fighting over water rights? Yep. Um, that is exactly the kind of thing that a private military, if Idaho, you know, gets one, then Oregon has to have one to compete with them to guarantee their water. It's right. the and what happens the, when the Idaho-Oregon border gets gets militarized? Yeah, exactly. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That is the explicit goal of a federal government. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, free health care, liberty, a functional justice system that is non-racially uh, biased, pursuit of happiness, education, where if you're going to be a maximize your value, you have to have education to pursue happiness. Those three things are the constitutional purposes of our government. Well, sort of. They They're not in the Constitution, things. Charles. They're in the Declaration of Independence, so they have no legal uh, basis. But, right, yeah. but there are aspirational. Uh, you know, those the, yeah. those are those are what we have claimed to aspire to ever since 1776, when that document was signed. Absolutely. And that, the Democrats can message on that and take away freedom, freedom from the people who don't understand it, and say, "Here's what you need to be free," as you were talking about. You know, you're not free if you're poor. You're not free if you're looking for your next meal. You're not free if any of these things. And uh, the the Democrats have to message strongly on that. But in the meantime, you've got people that are saying, well, you know, our our whims are equivalent to your rights, and therefore we need a uh, military to support our whims. That is the end of the federal government. That is the yeah. end of the United States, no matter what letterhead people use after that. I would say it's the beginning of the end. Uh, it's, it's the beginning of America starting to split into factions. This is what happened with South Sudan and Sudan. Um, you know, when, when regions start to factionalize and then they, they grow more and more extreme and more and more distant from the, from the larger country, you know, pretty soon they secede. 
And like I said, this is this mm -hmm. is the exact same movie we saw in 1861, and it, and it didn't turn out well, and it won't turn out well this time. Charles, well said. Thank you very much. Nick in Highland, California. Hey, Nick, what's up? Hi. I'm listening to the SCOTUS uh, arguments mm -hmm. the other day, and it, it feels like Mississippi's policy is going to end up being the U.S. policy of abortion. They've already got half the states. And are we going to let Mississippi set the rules for the whole country? Oh, and it's worse it's than that. The, Miss that the Mississippi legislature has now passed a six-week ban. You know, this was a 15-week ban. And, and you had, uh, in the Supreme Court, you had uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, going, well, what's so wrong with 15 weeks? That's plenty of time to figure out you're pregnant and get an abortion. Well, <laughs> Mississippi just passed a six-week ban. So that's, you know, I mean, you know, once once the court strikes down Roe, yeah, exactly, Nick, that's that's what we are going to do. We are going to let Mississippi define the standards for the country. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Uh, you know, the, the, the good news is that some states I mean, Connecticut, for example, actually has the right of a woman to get an abortion in their constitution. Other states have it in their laws, like California. In fact, that, the, the, at the time, it was the most liberal abortion law in America. It was signed by Governor Ronald Reagan. But anyhow, I got to run. Nick, thanks for the call. We'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Dale in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Dale, what's on your mind? Hi, John. 
I don't know if you remember, but earlier this spring I called you and told you about the Missouri legislature creating a uh, militia uh, beholden only to the governor in times that he needed. No, I didn't recall I knew, that, Dale. I'm sorry. Did, did they succeed? Have they done it? Uh, I've been looking it up, and I can't find where, where the bill went, but both the legislate both houses uh, uh, put the bills forth. I can't find out what happened. Right. But at that time, I told you they're only going to be the first one, yeah. and now we have this Santos. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize there was a precedent outside of the Civil War, um, but wow. Dale, thank I'm you. I'm afraid it's coming. I'm afraid it's coming. Yeah. One state at a time. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, you know, as America gets armed, now the individual states are going to get armed, and the whole zeitgeist just keeps moving along, and that is not a good idea. Dale, As thank you. As part of that same bill, there was, a, there was a part of it requiring everybody 18 to 35 to own an AR-15. Wow, that's, that's pretty bizarre. Uh, you know, we, yeah. used to, we used to live in, in uh, Roswell, Georgia, and the next town north of us, I think it was Alpharetta, uh, might have been the next town up from that, actually. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of that town. But they had a requirement that you had to have a gun or you paid a $25 fine every year if you didn't have a gun in the house. Um, but it was really more of a stunt. You know, nobody actually enforced it. Dale, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Rob in uh, Chico, California. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I, just rethinking, I am unsure about your mask hole um, staying at home um, passport idea. So that's about 50 million people, I would imagine. 60 is, I believe, the official number. I, I heard that the other day from somebody in the administration so that would how would you how how so would they they'd be out of work they would have un, they'd be unable to hold a job and so i assume you wouldn't want them to somehow their rent would have to be paid for them their food well in four states now you've got four iowa tennessee kansas and florida have all passed laws in the last three or four weeks saying that if you get laid off because you refuse to get vaccinated, you instantly qualify for unemployment benefits. Generous. Yeah, and you agree. And you're you're I just want to know if that's something you would agree with. I don't have a problem with that. You know, if states want to reward people for not getting vaccinated. You know, that's their that's their privilege. Uh, I'm not trying to be punitive here. I'm trying to uh, be able to go into a store or go into a restaurant or go into a theater the without cost, getting the cost, infected. The cost of doing that for 60 million people is so much that you can't even imagine it. Yeah, and they'll and that's why they'll get vaccinated. to the Tom Hartman program. Bob, we had 40,000 state employees in Oregon, and they were all threatening, you know, ten, th thousands of them were going to leave and go off. And we ended up firing a dozen people. Wynn in Solon, Maine. Hey, Wynn, what's on your mind today? Well, what's what's been on my mind for a while now i am so very very concerned about the 2022 elections because if we lose not too many of those elections i think we're down the tubes to tell you the truth yeah they just called the virginia legislature for the republicans after a recount in one of the counties there for example it's, um, it's going to be bad i'm awful concerned about the democrats not being able to get it together because we've got all these issues, you know, recently abortion, but, you know, student loans, educational issues, health care, national health care, climate, um, electoral issues, John Lewis, voting rights bills, workers' rights. I mean, you name it, all these issues, which most Democrats, you know, 
don't agree on all of them, but they're pretty much, you know, all those issues I agree with, but these are all battles. And if we don't put them together under one big umbrella to, to bring everybody together, because all these issues do tend to divide, distract, and cause chaos within the Democratic Party. Yeah. We have to put them together under one big umbrella, or the, the Republicans are going to—they're going to smash us. Yeah, there's they a really theory are. in NLP that the average person can hold uh, seven plus or minus two things in their mind at any one moment, and uh, typically three or four of those seven things have to do with your immediate surroundings. In other words, you're, you're sitting in the chair, you're paying attention to the fact that you're sitting in the chair, you're having a conversation, you're paying attention to the person, whatever it may be, which leaves two or three slots in your brain, essentially, to deal with an issue. And that's why so the Republicans we, always boil we, it down to three things. And the Democrats okay. need to do the same thing. Boil it down to three things. So why don't we bundle these things together? Yeah. Because we're going to lose. Because all these well, that's what Build Back Better was, was. It was a marketing device. It's a bundling device. Yeah. So, so anyway, what I'm proposing is we, we fight the war, not these little battles. Mm -hmm. We fight the war, the one war, which isn't the war that's been going on for time infinitum, okay? And it's the war of class struggle. Because all of these issues do come down to power and money, okay? That's what the Republicans want. That's what they seek to support their oligarchy. They're a bunch of fascists. They know what they're doing. And that's what they want. They want power and money so they can have control over the whole darn world. And if we, don't, if we don't come out and we represent our struggle as a class struggle, okay, we're going to lose. Yeah. We need to put them under the umbrella of class struggle. This is class warfare. Make no two. I mean, it just is. Yeah. And we need to do that and push that. Any one of those issues, and Tom, you're the perfect man to help us do this. Please. Well, let's uh, talk about uh, yeah. yeah, no, I'm 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 all in favor of the Democratic Party messaging better win. I wrote a book about it in 2008 um, that I know some some Democrats have read and use. Um, I and and like I said, I think that they should boil it down to three things. And I think it should be health, you know, free health care, free education. And and, uh, you know, I think the third yeah. one could be up for grabs. But well, what's wrong with one thing, Tom? One thing. One the thing. war. Because war is a struggle. It's class struggle. I, okay, here's here's another way to do it is we could seize the frame of freedom and go back to the frame for freedom that Franklin Roosevelt used. In fact, I was thinking I should write an op-ed about this. FDR said, you're not free if you're hungry. You're not free if you're homeless. You're not free if you're jobless. You're not free if you're, if you, you know, if your potential hasn't been met by having a decent education. And, and the Democrats could use that word freedom and they could rebrand freedom, in fact. And I think that they should take a serious shot at it. Um, and that would be your one issue win. You could build everything into that and make it a freedom agenda for the Democratic Party, um, you know, which seems like kind of a cool idea to me. Win, I got to run, but thank you for the call and uh, spot on. Dave in Stillicom, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? 
Hey, Tom, how's it going there? Good. Yes, hey, I, I, I'm calling in, in sort of a in reaction to this lady that called that that said that all Catholics, or at least most Catholics, I guess, are, are opposed to abortion. Yeah. Well, not true. I'm a practicing devout, pretty pretty devout Catholic myself, and I'm very strongly pro-choice, as is President Biden. I would invite folks to check out uh, Catholics for Choice. There is a uh, on the website. So yeah, it kind of it kind of bugs me when people feel free to just use way too broad a brush to say all Catholics or all you know. Yeah. Where do we? Yeah. So yeah, that's all for now. Thank okay. You. Thanks, Dave. Bye-bye. Good to hear from you, Nancy in Minneapolis. Hey, Nancy. Thanks for listening to uh, KTNF AM nine fifty. What's up? Hey, Tom. I like to. Con- I agree with your um, article regarding people with COVID should be isolated. I like to compare that to tuberculosis. A hundred years ago, tuberculosis was horrible. I mean, it was out of control. And the way that uh, we combated it was to put people in sanitariums and we had public health officials watching them. We still have public health people watching people with TB, even Mm -hmm. if they're in the latent stages. I consider people with COVID who are unvaccinated and unmasked as biological weapons in this country, and we have to control it. The only way to do that... I'm sorry, finish. The only way to do that is to isolate them. Yeah, and and I would add that uh, there's no way of knowing if somebody is... Uh, who is unmasked and unvaccinated is actually infected. But the fact of the matter is right. that they're much more likely to be infected than somebody who has been vaccinated, uh, who is you know, right. more resistant to the infection. I've had dozens of people tweet me and uh, and trash me over on Facebook for this, saying, well, you know, vaccinated people can still get infected and they can still pass the, vac- the infection along. It's true. Um, but they're nowhere near as likely to get infected as somebody who's unvaccinated, number one. Uh, they're nowhere near as likely to pass the infection along uh, because they're less likely to have such a severe infection, although it appears with Delta, the, the distinction is uh, substantially diminished, but nonetheless, less likely to pass it along and, uh, and less likely to die from it. And, and, you know, and why am I having to pay for the hospital expenses of all these people who are un- uninsured people who are showing up in the ER who didn't want to get vaccinated? I don't get it. Correct. So, I mean, if if. People with TB went around saying, well, I'm not going to wear a mask anymore. Forget it. I'm not going to do what the public health officials want me to do. How would people feel about that? Yeah. I think they would not. All you need to know, Nancy, is, yeah, I mean, look at what happened when President Barack Obama was our president. And he he let two people into the country, one who had been exposed to to Ebola, which was that nurse in New Jersey that Chris Christie tried to put Mm -hmm. in jail. And then the doctor who they flew yeah. to Texas for, who actually had Ebola, and he got treated at the hospital in Texas and, and recovered from it. Um, they were calling for his impeachment. How dare right. he, you know, let these people who could be infectious into the United States? Uh, no, this is all political. This is, they are trying to destroy the Biden presidency by keeping this virus going, and they don't give a rat's ass how many people die. And it's disgusting. We, it's just disgusting. We need consequences. We need consequences. Otherwise, people are taking the upper hand and they can't do this anymore. They're killing us. 
So, yeah. no, we, we, they have to suffer consequences. And they're not just killing us. They're killing our economy. They're killing our society. We, we are not getting mm -hmm. together with each other. There's, there's an epidemic of anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder across this country from two years of this stuff. And, they're, and they want to drag it out and drag it out and drag it out until they've got Republicans in charge. And then they can proclaim it's all fixed. And it's right. not going to work. It's not going to work. I mean, you know, we are wise to them. We have figured out what they're up to. And, you know, I, for one, have no interest in seeing this go any farther. I, it's time to lock down the mask holes. We'll be back. They're doing it in Europe. We can do it here. We'll be back. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. And uh, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Rich in Cedral Woolley, Washington. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Well, I'd like your opinion on my strategy for the 2022 congressional elections. That We go into hopelessly red districts and uh, make a concerted effort to get the most progressive possible Democrats on the ticket. Doing so, you get bullet point uh, outline of the progressive agenda in the voter pamphlet. You raise a, the uh, reputation of the uh, progressive candidate. And also, you know, you, you, you're practicing the uh, Truman principle of, you know, you don't uh, – a Democrat who runs like a Republican will always lose to a Republican. And then there's the off chance that, you know, Republicans tend to get themselves in corruption troubles. And maybe everybody just in a, a district here or there, they turn and say, no, we're going to vote Democrat this time, Democratic, because, uh, you know, our guy screwed up so bad. <laughs> I think that what, would be the long what you're describing, Rich, was Howard Dean's 50 state strategy. 
And uh, I mean, you know, he, he wouldn't have added the find the most progressive candidate you can get um, because that wasn't the position of the party at the time. But I think it's getting close to that right now. I completely agree with you. I think, yeah, just having that stark contrast out there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you and, and I think it'll win in some red states. I mean, again, I, I go back to how well Bernie did in West Virginia, um, you know, in the primaries. I mean, it just he, he, he won every single one of those counties in West Virginia. Leave out the hot button issues, you know, the three G's, God, guns, gays. Leave out the critical race. They basically ignore those or have just a pat answer mm-hmm. for any of those. And just if you could even just use your bullet points in the voters pamphlet and the build back better, whether yeah. it's passed or not. Say, this is what we believe in. This is what we vote for. Yeah, I'm with you. And lay out, let the people see it in very simple, non-controversial format over and over and over again i'm i'm completely with you rich brilliant thank you jen in seattle hey jen what's on your mind today uh hey tom um so i think there's kind of a millennial perspective missing here on a a couple of things um i'm a millennial i'm 38 i have three kids um thanks to our country's misogynistic refusal to implement universal comprehensive sex ed my oldest is 21 (laughs) um so i know millennials and gen z Uh uh-huh um, at the same time, my dad is an environmental scientist. He's been working on wetland restoration for decades. I care about the environment. I have, I have less in the game. Um, but I can't buy an electric car. Um, millennials are broke. We're renters. And until somebody makes it mandatory that apartment complexes have charging stations for electric cars, we're not buying electric cars. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, on the renting thing, too, I'd like to know where everybody thinks millennials are going to live when we're old, when we're not going to have houses paid off to live in. Um, and as for the abortion thing, millennials and Gen Z are broke. Um, mm-hmm. Millennials walked into the worst economic opportunities of any generation since before the Great Depression. We are not getting on a plane for an abortion. And it's millennials and Gen Z right now that are, you know, of that reproductive age. We're not getting on planes for an abortion. It's a good point. It's a good point, Jen. So do you think that that is going to... Uh, radicalize is probably not quite the right word, but uh, incentivize, shall we say, millennial and Gen Z women to come out and vote against these Republicans who are, you know, uh, pushing a forced, uh, uh, forced pregnancy uh, agenda? I, look, I know Twitter's not the real world, and it's really easy to get into a, a, a bubble on social media. Sure. Everything that I see from, from women, we're pissed. Good. Um, and young women are especially angry. I'm seeing more and more women, especially younger millennials and Gen Z, becoming very radicalized feminists. Yeah. Um, we're sick of it. It, it. There's there's still no equal opportunity for women in this country. And we had a report from the U.N. not too long ago saying we're doing a horrible job yeah. on, on, on women's opportunity. Yeah. That's completely inexcusable in the United States in the 21st century. I'm with you. I'm with you. Jen, thank you. Thank you for bringing an important voice to the conversation. uh, That was a very good one. I appreciate it. Ed in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind today? Uh, I'd like to talk about Merrick Garland. Mm -hmm. He was a Merrick Garland. He um, was an appellate court judge, which is a lifetime appointment. He resigned that to take a term limit job, which is only four years, basically. You're talking now, Attorney reason, General. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can think of three reasons he'd do it. One, he's very zealous and wants to protect the Constitution, and he's going to get in there and fight 
over what happened on September, uh, January 6th. Two, he wants to be a, a Supreme Court justice, play it cool, get no opposition. Or three, he can fall back on a big law firm if he doesn't get well, Ed, I would I would say a as an appellate court judge, he could have fallen back on a big law firm. B, being attorney yeah. general, which is a fairly controversial and political position, actually diminishes uh, in many regards his his uh, uh, the probability well, that he could be confirmed to the Supreme Court. And well, I, I mean, uh, let me give you a, a four, uh, you know, a, a, B, C, D. Let me give you a fourth option, and that is that the guy is old enough and well off enough that he just figured this is a great way to end his career in the law. What I wanted to talk about is the reason why of what he's doing. Has he performed as a zealous prosecutor? No, he has not. The only thing that he's tried so far are the people, which I would call foot soldiers, which are lay down cases because they're all on film. None of them involve seditious conspiracy are you are you an attorney or a a former prosecutor ed i was a former prosecutor for 30 years in texas a felony prosecutor trial attorney Mm -hmm. and so what it doesn't impress me at all that that's a, a logistics problem that is not a problem of law they're all laid down cases. But, Ed, if What's you're going to go problem? after the big, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is he's not going after the big fish, but if you're going to go after Absolutely. the big fish for seditious conspiracy, you have to get all of the fish involved in the conspiracy before you bring the charges No, down. you don't. No. No, you don't have to get all. In fact, conspiracy is two or more people right. designed to a uh, do agree among themselves to commit an offense. He does have a grand right. jury that is looking into seditious conspiracy. I know that. Is, okay. is, is that not a good sign? Uh, well, it depends. You can have a seditious conspiracy on the people that are the proud boys. You can do a, uh, uh, just isolate that and call it a Mm-hmm. A seditious conspiracy. But the real thing is, if you look at the offense, you look at who benefits from the offense. The offense is stop the steal, which means to prevent the counting of the votes. Right. Delay, stop a governmental function. Right. Who benefits from that? Do the people that tried to do it forcefully benefit who benefits donald trump trump yeah yeah there he, he you gets go. four more years to stay in, stay out of jail and and uh, you know avoid uh, right. investigations and prosecution and when you look at conspiracy charges you also can take in the uh, fact of who benefits from the object of the conspirator right Conspiracy. Here's, here's, and further, not all people have to know each other as long as they have agreed with one another. Two people agree with this person, that person agrees with another person. 
all to do the same thing, then they're all guilty of an overact committed by any one person. You know, I get that. So so what do you think is the possibility or or what do you think of this scenario? You've got the January 6th committee. They've gotten testimony from over 250 witnesses, tens of thousands of pages of documents. Liz Cheney says they're going to be holding public hearings after the first of the year and laying all this stuff out for the American public. Well, they're also going to be laying it out for the Department of Justice. Is it not possible? I know it's happened in the past that Congress, congressional investigations have have been handed off to the DOJ that then you know pulls out a grand jury and goes to town against somebody. Uh, we certainly saw that with the mob in the 60s. Uh, you know, some some posit that that was why they why the mob killed Kennedy. I mean, is that not possible too? Yes, but that's my point. That's my point. Congress shouldn't be doing the DOJ's work. All the stuff. Yes, the the committee, the sixth committee, and the Washington Post are doing his work. Yeah, they do not have subpoena power to bring him into a court and make deals. Yeah, I get it. Only he has that. Yeah, and it takes a long time to do it, but. You get the small fish and you move up to the top. That's the way you handle criminal uh, criminal enterprises. Ed, I, I am I am no more enthusiastic about him than you, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm still hopeful. Ed, thanks You're for the listening call. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. My sense of it is that there is a a, a momentum here that Trump is not going to be able to stop. I mean, time will tell, but that's my sense of it. Wasilla, Alaska. Hey, LaToya, thanks for watching us on Free Speech. What's on your mind today? Well, I thought I would never get through. How are you today? Thank you. I'm, um, I'm fine. Thank you for, for waiting and for getting through. Hey, I wanted to bring something up that I was watching your show this morning, and, you know, from time to time I pick up on a show here or there. I don't, I'm not really an avid television watcher, or even I don't listen to the radio a lot, but I heard this. Mm-hmm. And it was you were speaking with Dan earlier, and Dan was talking about how the Bible doesn't necessarily condemn abortion or that he couldn't find it. I think that what he's doing is he's looking at abortion in the Bible from a political standpoint, when everything expressed in the Bible is spoken in stories and parables, so not necessarily um, in politics, but there was a lot of politics involved in everything that happened in relation to the Bible. So I wanted to quote something to you, and it was Jeremiah 1 and 5, and it says, okay. Before I formed you in the belly, right. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So in essence to people not having a soul before they're born, or not necessarily in essence, but just an understanding that people actually do have a soul before they're born, because God specifically says, according that before to the Bible. you were born, according to the Bible, right. that I knew you. So a lot of people think that there is nothing in relation to the Bible about abortion, but many times in the Bible, what is being referred to in abortion was 
it was related as child sacrifice. And you will find that in stories where, like, they tried to kill Jesus and they were killing all the firstborn sons because they wanted to find that one child, you know, and it was condemned by action. You didn't necessarily see Moses' mom kill him, but she did consecrate, you know, she waterproofed the basket and pushed him, you know, across the river. Or you would see in time, and about like Jesus, the three wise men, they didn't go back and report, you know, to Herod or whoever sent them to find Jesus to kill him. They bought gifts and offered things to him, and then they went on their way. They basically quit their jobs because they didn't report back to what they were supposed to be doing. But the other thing is, uh, again, she said uh, millennials, um, she believes that millennials are broke. What I found out is millennials are really good at hacking. The millennials aren't broke. What they've done was they have created a society where they know how to get the money through marketing and other uh, schemes, and they've referred to it as the great wealth transfer. And I know because I'm a victim of that great wealth transfer system where they basically siphon your personal information out of you and then they sell it to everybody else while they censorship you and then tell people. I don't think that's millennials, Latoya. I think that's Facebook and Google. But who's running Facebook and Google and who designed it? Well, I, Mark Zuckerberg is 35. I don't. Does that make him? Or he's in his 30s, I think. Is is he a millennial? He's in his 30s. Okay. Well, all right. Point made. Latoya, I you know I get it, and you, you're expressing your faith, and I honor your faith. I, I uh, and, and I'm familiar with all of the Bible verses you're citing. I, I disagree about the interpretation of them, but uh, you know, you, we are each one of us is entitled to our own understanding of these things. In my humble opinion, Latoya, thank you for the call. And thanks for watching us there in Alaska. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today in our book club, we're reading from Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove with a foreword by the Reverend William Barber II. This is from page 61. The chapter is Living in Skin and the subtitle is American Slavery and the Problem of Bodies. America's original sin of race-based slavery is rooted in our bodies. While most of us will do what we can to save our own skin, our bodies bear the curse of human rebellion sweat of the brow and the pains of labor. The sins of our fathers and mothers bear down on bent backs and sciatic nerves. Slavery has always been one means humans employ to skirt this curse. To the victor belong the spoils is an ancient truism of war. Often in human history, the spoils include people, but war is not the only way some bodies become subject to others. In the opening lines of the Exodus story, the Bible says, quote, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt, end quote. In the messiness of politics, favor comes and goes. But the people who are in power almost always make sure someone else carries the weight 
and does the dirty work. The unique contribution of slavery during the establishment of the American colonies was the employment of skin color to assign a class of people to perpetual servitude. Originally, white and black people came to the colonies as servants of the settler class, but race-based slavery emerged as an efficient means of building up the plantation economy by permanently assigning people of African descent to the status of slave. Africans who survived the long journey across the Atlantic Ocean, often chained to one another and packed prostrate in the hold of a ship, became human chattel in the New World. In explicit contrast to the enslavable black flesh of Africans, people of European descent began to imagine themselves as white. By virtue of their whiteness, and for no other reason, they imagined a divine right to own black bodies. For the people whose saleable skin rendered them subject to use and abuse, this arrangement was obviously anathema. Quote, and before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free, end quote, they sang when white folks weren't listening. Tactics of resistance varied, but people of African descent always knew in their bodies the basic heresy of race-based slavery. And in their bodies, white people knew it too. To comprehend the moral contradiction of America's original sin, you must consider what it meant for a young white man to come of age on a plantation. Imagine yourself growing up amid a pastoral landscape in the early 19th century, a half-day's horse ride from the closest city. As for any child, your world is the people you've known and the places familiar to you since birth, the big house which you've always called home, and the barn where your daddy tied a rope swing from the rafters so you could fly down from the loft and land safely in that mound of hay by the horse stalls. For as long as you can remember, you've always had your studies and your chores to do. Mother always insisted that you learn responsibility, but you always felt closer to Betsy, the enslaved black woman who changed your diapers and cooked your food and picked you up when you fell and skinned your knees. You never remember running down to the barn to play without Betsy's two boys and Imogen, the girl between them, the one that was born just three months after you. For you, a son of so-called privilege, puberty means beginning to make sense of why you kissed Imogen down in the hay pile when you were six and why you both always knew you could never tell a soul. It means coming to terms with the fact that you and Imogen both share your father's nose, and it means beginning to internalize an arrangement in which you will one day inherit as property the woman who both competed with your mother for your father's love and nursed you at her breast. If you were a good Episcopalian, as most plantation families were, this is also about the time you would be confirmed as a living member of the body of Jesus Christ. The Southern writer Lillian Smith wrote a century after slavery's end, now at one's feet there are chasms that had been invisible until this moment. Describing an experience shared in silence by generations of white Christians, she observed how, quote, one knows and never remembers how it was learned, that there will always be chasms, and now across the chasms will always be those one loves, end quote. To observe that race-based chattel slavery was a gut-wrenching experience that white people also experienced in their bodies is not in any way to equate their suffering with that of African Americans. It is instead to try to understand the lived experience that informs the ways they read the Bible and imagined their world. Because even though slavery ended in 1865 in the United States, most white Christians went on reading the Bible and seeing the world around them exactly as they had before. Growing up Southern Baptist in North Carolina, I memorized scripture in the King James Version and engaged in a serious program of discipleship as a white adolescent without ever giving serious consideration to the Southern in our denomination's name. Then in 1995, the summer before my freshman year of high school, the Southern Baptist Convention issued an official apology for its endorsement of slavery. There it was. We'd separated ourselves from our American Baptist sisters and brothers some 150 years earlier 
in order to stay southern and keep our slaves. Enough water had passed under the bridge for our elders to decide it was time to bury the hatchet. They said they were sorry. But their concession stirred up old fears. Before I had finished high school, a conservative movement within the denomination insisted we had become too liberal, took over the denomination, and forced everyone who worked for the International Mission Board to sign a statement of faith to which they added an article about female submission. It was the first time in my life I'd seen people on the local evening news being interviewed about my church. The book, Reconstructing the Gospel. And uh, welcome back. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's up? Yeah, hi. Uh, just one thing quickly, since Dr. Mengele was brought up sometime during this week, it's an interesting factoid, factoid that when his body was found by the Brazilian government, uh, that they uh, wanted to repatriate back to uh, Germany. And hmm. the family fought against it. So the government said, OK. And they gave his skeleton to a medical school in Sao Paulo, and it still hangs there. For oh, that's interesting. That's ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, talking about greed, and I realize that's the only disorder that's not treated. The obsessive disorder, you know, or dopamine mm -hmm. disorder, that's not treated it is, at all. It is, no, it's not true. It is treated for poor people. It's called hoarding. But if you're rich, it's not treated. Right, right, right. But but now I understand that money is uh, free speech and that uh, corporations are people and also fetuses are people, too. Right. And at some point when you go back, all animals are the same when you get down to that cellular level. So what does that say? You know, everything is uh, right. uh, sacred. It's a but, good, good but, argument for vegetarianism, I suppose. Right. But anyway, the, 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 those on the court should talk to the Jewish people on the court, because in the Bible, it also says that if a man hits a woman who is pregnant and she loses the child, he has to pay in money whatever that, you know, potential was with that child. Well, it's not even uh, whatever the potential was. I, I, I believe the Bible specifies an amount, doesn't it? Or, right, or does it right. just say that, you know, he shall pay? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, you shall pay. And then it also says if a man should hit a, hit a woman and who's pregnant and kill her, you you uh, you go. That's capital punishment right there. Right. So the, so, so there's that difference, and uh, it, it just seems more and more like a religious issue, which is based on nothing, because Jesus never spoke about abortion or homosexuality, and right. he lived his life as a Jew. Right. So. And yeah. the Jews, uh, there's the only controversy was first breath or when the head first comes out was considered life. And uh, a, a person really isn't a human being, even when they're born, until they're wanted and loved. Otherwise, they're just an empty vessel. Right. And just and, and, and Bill, you know, respectfully, just like the people who have called on the other side of this argument, you're representing your beliefs. And I think that we just need to acknowledge that we're all entitled to our own opinions here. James in Los Angeles. Hey, James, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you for being there and doing such a great job. This is my first time calling. I'm really grateful for all the hard work you do to make your show so accurate. Thank you. The thing that makes me most furious is that I see the uh, abortion ban as religious intolerance, and I don't see 
uh, Democrats pointing this out, that this is this is Christian fascism, basically. The whole reason that these people are doing this are is because they're forcing their religious beliefs on the rest of America. And why aren't the Democrats framing it like that? It's a good question. Uh, probably because they don't want to offend people who are religious. But, the, you know, the Democrats are always worrying about offending people. And I think it's stupid. <laughs> you know, it I is. It's like those people that would be offended will never vote for Democrats anyway. Exactly. The truth shall set you free. And we need to point out that these hypocrites are lying constantly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I am completely with you. Thank you very much, James. Very well said. God bless. Yeah. Thanks. Back at you. Dave in Lombard, Illinois. Hey, Dave, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Tom, you and I are the same age, so you, you'll understand the times at which I'm going to relate this story. Back in 1970, I attended a party where there were several 20-somethings in attendance, and I overheard these two young women talking about a medical procedure that each one of them had received, and I realized that they were talking about receiving an abortion. Right. They called it a DNC well, back and, then. Right. So I, I interrupted them and said, wait a minute, how did you get an abortion? Isn't that illegal? And they said, no, not if you know the law. And I said, well, what's the law? And they said, the one girl said, I made an appointment with a psychiatrist. I went and saw the psychiatrist, told them, I told him I was pregnant and I was despondent over this. And if I carried the pregnancy to term, I would kill myself. Well, the psychiatrist writes a diagnosis that the patient now is suicidal Therefore, her life is in danger. Therefore, she is entitled to a legal abortion. And that's how abortions occurred, many of them, before Roe versus Wade. Yeah. And those laws are still on the books today. If the woman's life is in danger, she is entitled to an abortion. They don't give a reason why. But yeah. if there's an attorney out there that can tell me different, I'm willing to listen. But there this huge loophole still exists in all the abortion laws today. Right. And that only works, Dave, if you can afford to go to a psychiatrist. I mean, the, the bottom line well, is any woman who can afford to go to a psychiatrist can probably just as easily afford to get on a plane and fly to a state where abortion is legal. The problem, the real problem, the real crisis is not going to be for middle class and upper middle class women. It's going to be for women of poverty, poor women. They're going to get slammed by these bans. Just absolutely well, slammed. If somebody confront them the money to see a doctor for a one-time visit, it yeah. might be worth it. I don't well, know. You know, and, and when that becomes a thing, when that becomes a regular thing, then they'll figure, you know, the states will start passing laws to outlaw that. No, I don't I, remember I think that. I they need I, that loophole for their own purposes, too, though, Tom. Yeah. What I remember is yeah. DNCs. You know, uh, women would say, I'm having a really, really painful period, and they'd go in and do this kind right. of scraping of the uterine wall, which, uh, surprise, surprise, if there's anything in there, it comes right out. And, you know, I knew it, at least two women who, who did that, you know, teenage girls, actually, back in the day. Dave, thank you for the call. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.
One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.